Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is going to be one of my favorite episodes of What You're Playing. And thanks so much for listening. Mike Jones here. Uh, Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any of the video game talk, the interviews, all of it going on with What You're Playing. And it's Mike Jones. Uh, subscribe to us. It's Mike Jones on iHeartRadio, on iTunes, on Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts. It's Mike Jones. Hit that subscribe button very much. Thank you for that. Now, let's get into the topic of conversation with my friend, Mr. Eric Christopher Myers. What's up, dude? Mike, thanks for having me. Absolutely, brother. This is a topic I'm really, really pumped up to talk about because this was a big part of my childhood, and I'm guessing yours as well because we're uh, pretty close to the same age. Point-and-click games on computer. I mean, it was the golden age back in the day, and this is this is a topic that is really open for a lot of things to cover. Absolutely, and it's funny that you say point-and-click because, I mean, that was – by the time the technology had reached that point, you know, I, it, it, was, it was a whole different level. Uh, you know, I mean, a lot of these were all sort of, uh, you know, typing commands and whatnot to begin with. And yet it was still so revolutionary. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't know about you, but uh, my days kind of really got into the point and click games more when it was, okay, actually just click the mouse and do it. But I know I went back and did the typing games. And, uh, man, some of those were really hard trying to figure out what to do in those. They were. And, you know, I'm of the generation, I might be a few years older than you, but, you know, I started the specific games that we're talking about today uh, when they were typing commands. And by the time it got to be point and click with a mouse, um, you know, to me, it it, it had lost some of the charm Hmm. uh, of actually, you know, it it felt a little bit like driving automatic rather than, you know, driving stick. Uh, You know, everything was simplified to a point where I was like, oh, forget this. This isn't as, uh, you know, hands on as it was. But I'm jumping ahead. (laughs) That's okay. You know what? Sometimes on what you're playing, we go all over the place with things. But uh, yeah, so these games we're talking about, um, you know, it was it was really spearheaded by two companies back in the day. And I know the games still are around today and they're still making them. And there are some great ones out there, which we'll talk about later on. But it was really Sierra and LucasArts and Sierra had the quest series with King's Quest. I know you said that was your favorite one uh, with Space Quest, Police Quest, Quest for Glory, and uh, Leisure Suit Larry in there. And then uh, LucasArts had Monkey Island, Maniac Mansion, Indiana Jones, and a couple other titles as well. And really, though, these weren't games that were mainstream for regular players because it was on computers where not a lot of people at that point still had or not a lot of people at that point had home computers yet. Yeah, it's funny because by the time that the King's Quest series in particular, which was, you know, sort of the fountainhead of everything that Sierra did, uh, really started to come into its own and make an impact on the industry and on gamers in general. That was the same time that the original NES was starting to blow up. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so most of the kids that were in my age bracket there in the, you know, uh, mid to late 80s, 
everybody was playing NES and, you know, Nintendo Power was what everybody was, you know, reading and diving into. And you had RPGs like Zelda that were starting to happen. But, you know, this this whole thing with PC-based games was like this, uh, you know, kind of cult thing in a way. It really was. It, it was... It, it. I don't want to say it wasn't mainstream because you could get these games everywhere, but, you know, not a lot of people had a home computer yet. And if you did, and let's be honest, Eric, if you did, and you, you talked about it at school. A lot of people looked at you like, what, what do you mean home computer? What are you talking about? Well, I was with that dorky contingent of kids in middle school <laughs> where, uh, you know, we spent our lunch times and our recesses in the computer lab. And if we weren't trading comic books and talking about what was happening in, you know, Marvel and DC, uh, we were all playing, uh, you know, copies of King's Quest and games like that that we were bootlegging and passing around. Well, well, I uh, allegedly, allegedly, let's <laughs> allegedly yes, has, has yes. the statute of limitations run out on that at this point. I think it has. I think in 2019, we're safe to talk about 1988. Yeah, I, th I think we're okay. But actually, uh, that was something I wanted to mention, too, because, you know, with these games, with all these point-and-click adventures, you could you could get to a certain point, but then a lot of these games had these books that had all this red ink on them, and you had to have, like, a red lens to look at it and see the blue ink underneath to get a special code to go through a door to get the answer to a riddle. I mean, they had a smart way of preventing bootlegging from happening. They did, and I remember that King's Quest Three was the first game in the series that had instituted this uh, copy protect program that was on the physical disc itself. And um, you know, you had to have somebody who, you know, in the days of MS DOS, knew how to get in there and you know break the code so that you could make and or distribute copies. And honestly, I wasn't distributing the copies that I bought. I, I felt like. Uh, you know, being 12, 13, 14, and all of that, saving my allowance for this, that, uh, you know, I was going to hoard it jealously. However, by that same token, I had this incredibly awful um, DOS-compatible, IBM-compatible computer at the time, and it would eat disks. And so it was prudent to me to, you know, as soon as I unpacked my new game, to make copies for myself and I would play the copies. Mm -hmm. But by that same token, you know, once King's Quest three uh, had come out and Sierra realized that people were able to crack that code, they started doing a lot of what you were talking about and, um, you know, instituting these sort of, um, you know, means by which to access the game that I found really irritating. I remember that King's Quest four was the first one where it was like, open your manual and on page 27, the third paragraph, fifth word, type that in. And it was just so irritating wanting to sit down and play a game and having to, you know, go through these sort of, you know, hoops and whatnot just to get started. It was, but then again, you look at it back in the day. I mean, uh, I'm trying to remember game games, probably back then, these games that we're talking about, these point and click adventures, when you bought them at the store, um, if you went to like, Electronics Boutique or Babbage's or any of those games. We're going real old school with this, Eric. Uh, oh, totally, totally. You know, they were about 30 bucks a pop, so I could see why they would want to prevent piracy as much as possible. Because, you know, unlike now, you can't copy a PlayStation 4 game. I mean, you can if you put the effort in, but it, it was pretty easy to copy those discs back in, back in that time. Absolutely, it was. It, it just became sort of irritating. And, yeah. you know, I felt that uh, as the games progressed and as the technology improved, um, you know, and again, we're jumping ahead, but, you know, I felt that a lot of the uh, things that made the games more accessible 
took away a lot of the charm, and that includes the methods of just booting the game up. Sure, sure, sure. But you know what? You, you got to see both sides. And, and you know, you, you make movies, so you know all about bootlegging and piracy and how you have to do everything to prevent it. So, you know, you oh, can, totally, see, you can totally. see their point when you look back on it now. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm the first person to sit here and say, hey, everybody, please buy a copy of every movie or CD or book or whatever it is that you get. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so these point and click adventure games uh, and we're going to focus on on the Sierra ones today. Uh, don't get me wrong, though. Love the LucasArts ones as well. I mean, lots of fond memories about Monkey Island and Maniac Mansion, which actually Maniac Mansion was the first one to go on Nintendo. It was on the original NES, so I liked having that there. But uh, you were a big King's Quest guy, so what got you involved in that? Was it like your friends at school told you about it? Uh, did you find it somehow just reading things on an old bulletin board online or what? Um, actually, what happened was my father got the family our very first home computer. And, God, I think this was around 1987. And it was, as I said, an IBM-compatible um, terrible, terrible monitor that was RGB. It only had three colors. And um, he brought home from work a stack of games on, you know, the old original, you know, floppy disks. And they were all games that uh, co-workers had copied for him. So my first version of King's Quest II was actually a bootleg. And um, I ended up just sort of, you know, being 12 or 11 or however old I was at the time and going through all these games and seeing, you know, what they all were. And I found King's Quest too. And it was unlike anything that I'd ever seen. And, you know, you have to give it a sort of historical context because prior to these games, largely what you had were text adventures, mm -hmm. particularly if you wanted to play anything that was in the sort of uh, fantasy genre of which, you know, being a big Tolkien nerd as a kid, that was my thing. Um, so there were games that had limited um, visual interaction, like the Bard's Tale um, or, you know, Zork was something that was strictly text-based and you just typed, go north, go west, go left, go whatever. King's Quest, you actually had a character on screen um, who was navigating a world map um, that was circuitous. So, you know, if you went up, you know, X number of times, you ended up back at the beginning again. But it was um, a, a landscape uh, of screens that were 3D at that time, meaning if there was a tree, you could go in front of that tree or you could go behind that tree. And you sat there with your, your arrow keys or a joystick, if you chose, and could maneuver the person around. It was like playing a cartoon mm -hmm. and uh, then being able to type in what you wanted to do. Look at the hole in the tree, pick up the wooden stake on the ground, whatever that was. And it just it, it blew my mind because I'd never played anything like that before. And there, that was so revolutionary because, you know, you, you see Nintendo games, you, you weren't able to do that. And these graphics on these computer games, these point and clicks, they weren't. They weren't 8-bit. They weren't 16-bit just yet. They were like around 12 or 13-bit. But it was still like, whoa, this stuff is totally better than anything I've ever seen before. It was. And the thing that frustrated me as I began to find uh, you know, other schoolmates who owned King's Quest 2, and this was right before King's Quest 3 came out, which was the game that really, really revolutionized what Sierra was doing, um, you know, it frustrated me because most of the kids that I interacted with, they all had, uh, you know, the 
the 16 color monitor and you know so their their gameplay looked like what the box art was and i had you know again this rgb screen and if a color was supposed to be black it was represented by blue if a color was supposed to be white it was represented by orange and that was incredibly frustrating, but nonetheless, it still looked unlike anything that I'd ever seen. And it, it it captivated your imagination that you were the king or the queen in this land. In, in King's Quest, it was Daventry, and you could just go around and, all right, you have to find these certain things. You have to use your brain, say, all right, what does this apple do? Can I give it to a horse and maybe ride the horse? With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Can I use this magic mirror to transport somewhere else? Can I use this crown to do something? I mean, everything had a purpose. Everything was specifically there. And you had to go in there, use your imagination, and figure out what exactly to do with everything. And it was this weird hodgepodge melting pot of various sort of iconography. So, mm-hmm. again, King's Quest Two was the first one that I played. And I was immediately kind of, you know, dumbstruck by the fact that you had these little mini missions, you know, that, as you said, you know, you feed the horse or you do the whatever. And by accomplishing this sort of fetch quest, uh, you receive an item that you can use in your larger, um, you know, objective. And it was this weird combination of uh, fairy tales. So, you know, you'd interact with, you know, Rumpelstiltskin in one game, but then there would also be Count Dracula. There would also be Little Red Riding Hood. uh, There'd be a Pegasus. It, It was just this you know, throw every sort of, um, you know, story or, or movie theme at the wall. And it all, it all married together in a way that never felt, uh, you know, cheesy if you were, you know, having a quest that involved the three bears. Right. Uh, but then, you know, having to go and interact with Medusa. It was, it was cool, and it was unlike, again, unlike anything I'd ever played. And I like the fact that when you're playing these games, Eric, these Sierra games, or, or LucasArts too, they would put in these Easter eggs like of pop culture going on right at the moment. It's like, wait, was that was that Luke Skywalker that just walked by? What what is going on here? So they would always drop in those fun nuggets too, and that was another cool thing that it was like, all right, I'm in this fantasy, but it's captivating and it's current and it's fresh and it's something completely different. Oh yeah, you got to the other side of the River Styx and the you know the the haunted castle that you'd hear a couple of bars of Thriller. Yes, it, it was it was just crazy, and there were also Easter eggs. Um, that I'd never seen anything like this where they were cross promoting different games mm-hmm. on the line, you know? So you'd find a, you find a sign on a tree that was advertising space quest or, you know, there'd be, you know, in leisure suit, Larry, you go into the bar and there's a moose head on the wall from King's quest three. It, it was just, it was, it was so cool. And it was fun because you felt like when you were playing these games, um, you were sort of in on the joke and the programmers were, uh, you know, they, they knew you were in on the joke. Now, um, you know, it, it just gave it a it gave it a sort of intimacy. You know, you had Ken and Roberta Williams who, you know, wrote and programmed these games and they had a really great sense of humor about what they were doing. And it felt like kind of a, you know, a, a homegrown 
effort in a lot of ways. Absolutely. It was, you know, and I think they knew that the outside world looking in, they were like, all right, this is some nerdy stuff going on, but they took it all tongue in cheek and they were pretty damn successful at it too. I mean, they made a lot of money over the years doing all that stuff. And, you know, and and when you started, it was, it was the mid eighties going into your teenage years there. And then you saw the games progress as to, you know, King's quest three got better and better with the graphics and, you know, the storytelling, incorporated those graphics and made it even stronger. And then by the time you got to King's Quest 4 and 5, I mean, it was like King's Quest 5 was so powerful, my computer was barely able to run it. I was like, whoa, this stuff is mind-blowing what's going on here. Right, because that was the first one that was CD-ROM based. Yes. And it was a, it was a whole different thing. I remember when King's Quest 4 came out and uh, I was on the subscription list. And so they sent me all of the Sierra catalogs in the mail and, um, you know, I had gone to Babbage's about six months before King's Quest IV came out and had put down a down payment and reserved my copy. Um, they, they had a, an empty box in the store on the shelf, and I would just go in every week and look at this box. I could not wait for this game because the catalogs were showing the new improved graphic system that was being rolled out specifically for King's Quest IV. And when I finally got the game and I got home and I tore the thing open, not only were there nine discs, I mean, there were nine floppy discs. They were the three and a half inch discs, right? It came for the first time with the three and a half discs. Yes. So you got nine, nine of the big floppies and I think it was four or five of the mini discs. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the mini discs and had no idea what the hell I was looking <laughs> at. I just, I, I had no idea. I'd never seen these things before. And, you know, th- again, going back to feeling that as the games progressed and as the technology improved, I felt that a certain charm was lost. And it wasn't just the charm of, um, you know, the simplicity of the games in a lot of ways, for lack of a better term, but the fact that there were, you know, King's Quest One was one disc. King's Quest 2 was two floppy disks. King's Quest 3 was three. King's Quest 4 was nine. And it required, um, you know, so much power on your system just to move to the next board. And then, you know, if it said insert disk seven to, to enter this new environment, it, it, it just, you know, it stopped the gameplay in yeah, a lot of ways. It, it, it would take you out of the game and all. And and I want everyone that uh, that's listening now to what you're playing and hearing this to realize that back in the day, um, you couldn't just download the game, you know, where you hit download after you buy it and an hour later it's there. I mean, you had to go to the store. You had to get these games. You had to load in these discs. And it was a process to play these games. Now, a fun process. Don't get me wrong. And. You know, even though you said you were, you know, uh, the charm let off, you still got to play some pretty awesome games. But it was a struggle sometimes to do that. It was. It all depended on the power of your computer. Mm-hmm. Just like today, it's just that, you know, computers moved much more slowly back then. And when they started introducing things like animation, uh, you know, we're going to, you know, what we now consider cutscenes. Yes. Uh, you know, when when these games would put these in, um, you know, your computer would struggle to keep up with it. It, it could be a very frustrating thing. And so I, I really missed by the time we got to King's Quest Four the simplicity, for lack of a better term, of the earlier games, even though they were starting to push the envelope by adding things like, you know, a ticking clock. Um, you know, that you had to pay attention to or, or more discs with more environments. 
it just didn't require swapping disks out every five seconds. And if you, you know, accidentally went screen right to the next board and had to put in disk three, it was like, ah, crap. And now I've got to, you know, put in disk three, load that level, and then go back left again and put in disk one again. Yeah, and you and you better save, too, because every one of those games, you could save exactly where you were. But if you didn't save and it crashed, you were up the creek. It was, it was always the worst. Like, no, no, stupid computer. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. That would happen all the time. Yeah. Um. So, Eric, what? Uh. What? We we talked a little bit about King's Quest and all. And I don't know if you know this or not, but they had uh they had reintroduced King's Quest a couple years ago. They did a remake in 2015, uh, which got great reviews too. So I don't know if it's been you know if you've gone back and and looked for that or anything, but it's definitely worth checking into. I looked at it. I, I just feel those games are in so many ways a product of their time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, even if, and, and I, I don't know if you remember this, a couple years uh, into Sierra's heyday, they went back and they remade King's Quest One. Yes. And they, they began reprogramming the earlier games for re-release so that instead of, um, you know, the, the instructional information appearing at the bottom of the screen, they would appear as dialogue boxes. Mm-hmm. Little things like that, having a banner up top with the score being listed that weren't introduced until King's Quest Three. They started putting into the earlier games, but they wholesale remade King's Quest One. And I remember everybody that played it just going, oh, this is, this is garbage because it's, you know, yeah, it looks really nice and all, but it's it, it just doesn't have that charm. Interesting. See, see, because like by the time I had come on, I, I was a little later than that. I like I said, I wasn't so much on the the type and and go games like the original King's Quest or the original Space Quest or anything. And they had started to remake all of those, which you know I could see both sides of that. It's like, well. We had these great stories. Let's remake them for these more powerful computers now, which if you look at those computers now, it's like I have more power on the calculator on my phone than these computers did. But, you know, on the other hand, old school, like real diehard fans. Yeah. Like you. Okay, I'm not such uh, I'm not so sold on this. Yeah. And, you know, you also have to keep in mind and it, it, it could be a coincidence or or not. But by the time you got to games like King's Quest V, where it was mouse-based and point-and-click-based and CD-ROM-based, that was when Sega Genesis was coming out mm-hmm. and right before the Super Nintendo. And I feel like that was around the time that Sierra kind of lost their legs. Maybe they were, they were you know, front-runners in what we now consider, um, you know, PC gaming but they lost a lot of their audience and whether that was because the games became too involved and the technology wasn't there at the time to support their endeavors or the fact that the console wars just crushed them. Um, it, it was, it did signal the end of what Sierra was doing. It was a lot simpler to take your Nintendo, your super Nintendo, your Sega Genesis game, pop it in there, and just start playing, whereas on these games, you know, you have to load in the floppy disk, the CD-ROM, you have to use your DOS commands, you have to do all of this stuff, and the computer can crash, and meanwhile, on the other side, it's a pretty smooth sailing, easy system, so I could see where a lot of people were taken away on that part, and also, Eric, I wonder, do you think do you think companies like Sierra and LucasArts uh, missed the boat by not getting in on the console games and taking some of these and moving them to consoles? Well, you know, LucasArts managed to thrive because they did end up, you know, they stuck around longer and they did make the transition 
to consoles with a lot of their games. Of course, LucasArts is, you know, not what it was. It right. It even exists anymore. But, you know, they managed to sort of straddle the line there between, you know, uh, desktop gaming and console gaming. Sierra never made that transition. And they just, I, I think they were ahead of their time. And it was just, as you said, easier for a 13-year-old kid um, you know, rather than having to invest in this big, you know, home system that could support these sorts of games, you know, you could you could go get your Nintendo or your Sega for significantly cheaper. And there were endless games and all mm-hmm. of your friends had them. Now, uh, besides besides King's Quest, which other ones, uh, which other series did you like to play? I mean, I don't want this to sound like we're just bashing, 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 because these games were great. No, and, and they were, you know, such a huge part of so many of our childhoods for for, you know, so many years. Oh, absolutely. No, I was a huge fan. And um, King's Quest was my favorite because, mm-hmm. again, I had the, you know, the, the, the love of Tolkien and fantasy. Um, however, I played all of them and I loved all of them. It was, you know, Space Quest was something that I really dug because I was in Star Wars and it had this incredible sense of humor. The same thing with uh, Police Quest, which was totally outside of the box. Um, I had Quest for Glory in its original incarnation before Milton Bradley forced them to change the name from Heroes Quest. Yes. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Um, which was so cool because it was like an early marriage of RPG and what Sierra was typically doing. Uh, but the, the, the big one for me, as much as I played all of those, Gold Rush, The Black Cauldron, uh, the one that was, you know, considered, uh, you know, sort of a holy grail amongst my friends was Leisure Suit Larry in the <laughs> Land of the Lounge Lizards. Well, you know what? I want to I take some uh, extra time for Larry. I want to. Can we get to him in a few minutes? Because uh, he deserves Please. he deserves a spotlight for sure. Because every every kid that touched a computer back then was like, do you think we could play Leisure Suit Larry? It was, it, like you said, the holy grail. That's a perfect way to talk about it. Um, for me personally, 
I, I I like Space Quest. I like uh, Police Quest, and I want to get to those uh, as well. Quest for Glory, those were the ones. Heroes Quest, they were the ones that really got me in on the Sierra games because I love the mix of point-and-click and RPG. And you had to do some fighting in those games, too, which, uh, you know, it was actual, like, use the controller, move around. you got to fight and not just solve a puzzle. And I thought that was really cool. Building up your stats, you could play three different games as a fighter, uh, a thief, or a magician. And it was just, uh, it was well worth my money, for sure. I thought that was the best investment for me with my money, my time, and everything back then. It was confusing the first time I played it, simply because... It came out around the same time that uh, that uh, their their Gold Rush Prospector game came out, mm-hmm. um, and again was still following their traditional model. And playing Heroes Quest, and and I was I was also simultaneously I was playing the Bard's Tale, which I was really into. Ultima was out. Um, all of these, you know, sort of pre Skyrim sort of RPGs that you'd get on your 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 desktop. And Heroes Quest, or or Quest for Glory, as it was renamed was just, it, 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 it blew my mind because it was so different and yet the same from what Sierra was putting out. Yes. Um, the combat mode, you know, I just, it took me a while to get used to it because I was like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm, I'm fighting in these games. Those fights weren't weren't easy either. You had to work. You had to build up your stats. Now, there were ways to cheat and, and build them up quickly. If you wanted to throw a rock at a tree all day, you could do that and just hit, you know, the uh, the copy paste button and keep doing that when it was typing and then you could just click your mouse and do it but i liked with the the heroes quest series uh, quest for glory whichever way you want to talk about it that it was a continuous story where you go you know in the mountains in the spring then you're in the desert in arabia the plains in africa transylvania and then finally a seaside town and all your stats moved over which was another revolutionary thing it was like holy crap i built up my first character and i'm going to keep playing him on the second and third and fourth and fifth game now you beat me to it. I was going to say that was the first game where you could do that, where you could port a character over to the next one, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah, it was. It was the first series to do that. And, uh, you know, again, make sure you save. Otherwise, you're going to be mad when you don't. <laughs> yes, yes. I, You know, and I always felt like as cool as that game was or as that series was, it never caught on the same way. It never caught on the same way as a lot of their other games that they put out. And I felt like if something was going to help Sierra translate into the more mainstream uh, world of gaming, that that would have been the series to do it. Yeah. Again, it felt very cult in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And I I would figure of all of the ones that would compete with like a a big franchise like Zelda back in the day, that will be the one. You know, either that or King's Quest. Well, you know, both of them in that fantasy world. Yeah, but you know, in an age of um, you know of Mario and and of 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 games like that, Sonic the Hedgehog, that was one where instead of you know walking around and figuring out what to do with Little Red Riding Hood and what to give her, you know, this was something where you were actually you know fighting and having combat. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was it was a totally different thing, and it was extremely cool. Yeah, extremely cool. And then uh, we also mentioned Space Quest, which was fun. Uh, I thought the Space Quest games were. Uh, a, a bit over me just because I wasn't so much into Star Wars and Star Trek and everything, but definitely had a big audience. And you said you were a big fan of those too. I liked them. And, you know, it, it followed the same format. And again, for, for people listening to this that don't have a context, you know, you've got a, a character on screen that you are moving around in a 3D environment from screen to screen. If you go through a door, it takes you to the next screen. If you go right, it takes you to the next part of the room. Um, and, 
up until that point, everything had been very fantasy based in the Sierra um, uh, line of games. And Space Quest was taking the iconography of Star Wars and Star Trek. And, you know, everything was, uh, you know, based on spaceships or you would go down to, you know, planets with aliens and monsters. But at the same time, it had very much a Douglas Adams Hitchhiker's Guide um, sort of sense of humor about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's no coincidence that I believe it was written by Al Lowe, who went on to do the aforementioned Leisure Suit Larry. So everything was sort of a gag and an in-joke and making fun of the tropes and conventions of the genre that, you know, it is supposedly representing. Yeah, but not but not making fun where it's like you you guys you guys are losers or anything. It was making fun in a very tongue in cheek and hilarious way to do that. Very tongue in cheek. And you know, if you put it in historical context, you know, beyond the games themselves, this is a period in the mid to late eighties where Star Star Wars was over. And, you know, after Return of the Jedi, Star Wars would not, you know, re-enter the mainstream until The Phantom Menace in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, Star Trek also was this niche sort of thing and was sort of coming back after Star Trek Four and then the, 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 the Next Generation show that started in 87. But sci-fi was this very, um, you know, sort of, you know, perceived as being nerdy sort of genre. And as such, the games were, as you said, not making fun of the genre itself, but sort of having a laugh and, you know, elbowing the fans of that who were the ones who were ostensibly playing the games and saying, we know all the, you know, sort of in jokes to the movies or TV shows or various sci-fi series of books. And, you know, this game is for you. This game is not for the average player who might appreciate something like King's Quest. This is niche and we know it. And so we're we're actually speaking to the demographic that appreciates the genre. You know, and uh, before we get to Leisure Suit Larry, I know you're dying to talk about it. I want to save the best for last on this. <laughs> but uh, but the Police Quest series, too, they were totally different because uh, you couldn't like this was a game which, again, it was another 3D, you know, uh, click point and click game or, your, you know, you had to type out your commands and everything. But this one in Police Quest actually followed real procedures from police. They had a uh, former officer first do it. Jim Walls was the creative director. And then the former LAPD chief, Daryl Gates, was also behind these two. And they were pretty revolutionary. I mean, if you didn't follow things to the letter of the law, literally, like you were going to die and your game was going to be over. That just was crazy playing that the first time and realizing that I couldn't just, you know, sort of, you know, you, 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 you complete the, the particular mission, give this to that person. They give you this. Uh, like you said, the fact that there were procedures, you had to read the handbooks. You had to really pay attention to what was happening in the game and follow this very strict procedure. Um, that was so very cool. And I remember when those games started coming out, all of the, you know, quest games that were offshoots of King's Quest, whether it was Police Quest or, or, or any of the others, and going, Police Quest? What the hell is this? Um, that's, that's a dumb name, and I, I don't want to play, you know, cops and robbers, and, uh, you know, I want, I want the fantasy stuff. But I, I sat down and I played them and just went, these games are all the same template and yet they're so different in uh, again the procedures or the minutia of how they're put together it, it was so cool the imagination 
that went into constructing these. Absolutely. It was it was just it, it was incredible that Sierra had such a strong team and LucasArts as well that their teams could come up with these incredible stories, put them all together and with Police Quest make them real life too where, you know, if you don't handcuff your your suspect behind the back, they're going to kill you. They're going to take your club and hit you or whatever it might be. You know, I mean, I I just think they really went that extra mile on these and didn't just slap anything together. No, not at all. And, you know, we, we take for granted games today that were groundbreaking, like, say, the Grand Theft Auto games. Mm-hmm. And but but they they, you know, are standing on the shoulders of what Sierra did before that. They really are. They really are. All right, Eric, Leisure Suit Larry. Let's do it. <laughs> I remember playing that game for the very first time at a friend's house and he, he was this kid who also played all of the King's Quest games and the Space Quest games and Police Quest games. And he was like, hey, you know, I, I, I got Leisure Suit Larry. Or my dad's got Leisure Suit Larry. Everyone's dad uh, had a copy of Leisure Suit Larry from somewhere. Yes. And, you know, for, for someone who is not familiar with what that was, Leisure Suit Larry was taking the uh, me- mechanics and the template and the engine that drove all of the Quest games and it was a game specifically for adults. And your objective was you played this character named Larry Lapper, who was in the city of Lost Wages, wearing a leisure suit. And he basically, he basically was, uh, what's his face from Three's Company? He was Larry, uh, Larry right? Dallas Larry. from Three's Company. Yeah, right. Exactly. And he was that character. And the objective of the game is lose your virginity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's a 40 year old virgin and you've got to get laid. And so, you know, you got to buy a condom because if you have sex with a prostitute without it, you get AIDS and you die. Um, you've got to have breath spray because if you don't, your halitosis is going to, you know, scare <laughs> people away. There were, there were dirty jokes throughout the game and the game, the, the way that they password protected that one was there were trivia questions you had to answer up front, And they were all trivia questions that, conceivably only adults could answer yes you know and it it was it was all stuff like you know who who did lee harvey oswald kill and you know joe dimaggio uh played what sport you know these these dumb trivia questions um but it 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 was it was considered this r-rated video game that every kid wanted to get their hands on and i somehow talked my parents into getting it for me for my birthday without <laughs> fully telling them what the game was. They're like, oh, it's one of these Sierra games. So, yeah, we'll order that for you. And, of course, it arrives in the mail. And, you know, on the cover, you've got Larry leaning with a martini glass against a TV screen that has a girl in a hot tub with her prodigious breasts just barely covered by the water line. <laughs> It was fantastic. Oh my gosh, I remember I remember uh going to this guy Mike's house for the first time seeing this. He's like, "You got to check this out." And we were probably 8 years old. I had no idea what it was really all about, but man, it really was it was revolutionary. It was cutting edge and it was something people were talking about all over the place back in the day. And still still people will make some references here and there to Leisure Suit Larry. I I thought those games of all of the Sierra games were the funniest. They put you in these ridiculous situations. Larry would go around in not just the first one, but they made a bunch of them afterwards. And, you know, all these women had different fetishes, different situations, different scenarios. You had to figure out 
how to, I guess, crack the code on each of these ladies. And it was just, it was mind-blowing how stupid it was, but great it was at the same time. Incredibly stupid. I remember getting the second one, and there was this whole KGB plot that was involved yes. with it. And you had to, <laughs> it, it, was, it was so dumb, but it was wonderfully dumb. And, you know, it appealed to, you know, I have to wonder, if, if, if the games were essentially the, the equivalent of being R-rated and were for adults, the sense of humor was very much targeting the middle school sort of crowd. So they knew, they knew exactly who they were going after and that it was like, Hey, you know, if I can get my buddy Jay's dad to buy this, uh, you know, Jay's dad is going to play it. But we know that once, you know, Jay's dad goes to work, Jay's going to sneak in and he's going to play it and he's going to have his friends over. They, they knew who they were catering to. And it's wonderful. Absolutely. It's so wonderful. No, I remember I remember for my for my birthday when I was a kid that, you know, we went to uh, we went to a computer store. I forget the name of it, but it was a big computer store. I was told I could get a couple games and I snuck in the leisure suit Larry like. Four, uh, three pack of games in there, and you know my parents didn't notice, so it was cool that I had my own copies and everything. And and yeah, they were ridiculous. You went on a cruise ship in one. You 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 had the KGB thing in another. Then they put out Leisure Suit Larry Five, which like King's Quest Four and Five. They went to these graphics, and it was totally different. You're like, oh, this is even dirtier than the other ones. This is ridiculously great. Yes, and they brought in the passionate Patty character. Yes, and. Yeah, once the graphics got to that point, suddenly you felt like you weren't playing, you know, a kid's game anymore. Suddenly it was starting to really feel a little bit illicit, which, yeah. you know, again, is cool when you're of that age. No, absolutely. And uh, they actually, I don't know if you know this, Eric, but they put out uh, Leisure Suit Larry 1 for phones. They do have a mobile, the the full game, it's it's uh, it's high gra- high resolution graphics so it looks great still the same games though you can go through and play the exact same things plus they just put out a brand new leisure suit larry game a couple months ago uh always always with the great titles wet dreams don't dry tremendous <laughs> <laughs> i love the fact that there's so many websites right now where you're able to go the retro gaming websites and you can play all of these old sierra games yes and so you know i'll i'll get a bug up my butt every you know couple of months and i'll be like Hey, I want to, you know, I want to play Leisure Suit Larry again. And, you know, I'll waste the entire afternoon playing it. Yeah, and, and these games, like, there's a website that uh, that I know that has them, GOG.com, and you can get all five, usually these games came out, like, five bundles. Like, you can get all five Leisure Suit Larrys, the first five King's Quest or Space Quest or any of those for, like, ten bucks now. It's like, man, these are throwbacks of childhood, of teenage years, and they're pretty cool, and it's great that you can play them on new systems now, and they're not going to crash on you. And I'm able to sit here and play it and go, hey, look, white is white instead of orange, and black is black instead of blue. So I feel like I've finally been able to, to bring my middle school self into the, the next century. Absolutely. And also, we can get the jokes that maybe uh, you know teenage us didn't get back in the day. It's like, oh, that's freaking hysterical. That's good. That's really smart that they put that in there. Oh, absolutely. I loved it. And I will confess that I bought the Leisure Suit Larry hint book. And back in the day, in the late 80s, Sierra put out this series of hint books um, for each of their games Mm -hmm. if you wanted to get a perfect score. And they came in, you know, bubble plastic, uh, like what you, you know, you have to get scissors to cut the thing open. And the hint book came with a highlighter. So you had to actually go to find your question, and then you had to highlight the answer in yellow. 
And so by the time you were done with this handbook, the, the thing looked like you dropped it in the tub or something. <laughs> um, it was all rippled and expanded. But I bought the Leisure Suit Larry one specifically so that I would know all of the trivia questions up front and found just by, you know, having beaten the game going through and just, you know, highlighting all of the answers just to be able to see all of the in-jokes and all of the dirty references. I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a bar that takes place at the beginning of the game where there's a guy who is telling terrible jokes at the bar. And, you know, but he only tells you the punchline. So you had to get the hit book and highlight the joke in order to get the dirty jokes. So I was going to school and telling all of my friends what the dirty jokes in Leisure Suit Larry were. <laughs> Oh, man. Kids today don't know what they missed out on. They really don't. Um, Absolutely. So, Eric, I wanted to tell you, um, I don't know if you know, uh, well, we talked about the new updates on King's Quest, on Leisure Suit Larry. Both of those, by the way, have gotten some pretty great reviews. Uh, I don't. Do you have any current systems now? Do you have uh, any gaming at your house? Uh, I've still got, honestly, I'm still last generation. I've got an Xbox 360 here, okay. and I'm looking to pick up a PS4 just because... I've got to play Marvel Spider-Man, and that Friday the 13th game is just, oh, every time I go to Best Buy, I'm looking at it and going, i got to get this game. Well, there's another game called Thimbleweed Park uh, that came out, and uh, I got it for Nintendo Switch. It was made by Ron Gilbert, who did a lot of those games for LucasArts back in the day, and you know, the great thing about this, it's not... It's not flashy. It's not uh, a visually stunning game. It's in that between 8 and 16-bit graphics, and they they look at uh, X-Files and other, like, uh, unsolved mysteries, you know, those weird kind of things. So that's a game, if you love point-and-clicks, to definitely check out now, Thimbleweed Park. I, I, I love the story. It had all those elements that took me back to being a teenager and a kid and playing that stuff. So I can't recommend that enough. If, if you get it or anyone else, you're going to love it if you love point-and-click games and if you're telling me it's you know diving into the area of urban legends and you know folklore and x-files these sort of stuff then you know absolutely i gotta check this out yeah it's it it has all the jokes and everything so you know big big plug for thimbleweed park that game is awesome um you know eric i i do hope i know it's not going to be with console gaming but i would really like to see a resurgence and i know some of these games are still being put out here and there and you can get the retro ones i would love to see a resurgence on these games though especially if like thimbleweed park they made them on those not so great graphics but it's a story it's that mindset it's getting in there and playing these characters that made it so much fun yeah i mean it's like anything else you know once technology evolves it becomes very hard for programmers to go backwards you know, it's, it's it's why how many how many Mario games have we seen and in the over thirty decades? Yeah, right. But but what was the last one that was actually a side-scrolling platform game? Uh, um, no, they know, st- now they still. I will give Nintendo credit; they still do those. They still make a lot of those side-scrolling platforms. They look incredible. They're like nothing you've ever seen before. But they still do the side-scrollers. So they uh, well, then, they do. That shows you how out of touch I am. Then you know. It, it, <laughs> In that regard, you know, I, I, I just I'm of that generation where I miss games of that sort. And, you know, I love Donkey Kong. I love games like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, it's it's I, I guess I guess there are still audiences that are looking for it. So if you want to delete this part of the interview out, you absolutely can. Not at all. No, of course not. No, I would not. I would not. I, I think this is great. And you know what? Hey, kudos to the folks at Sierra, to uh, Ken and Roberta Williams and Al Lowe and everyone that made our childhood special with these games because y- 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 you built memories for us that last forever, and, and we thank you for that. 
Absolutely. I would encourage anybody that's into video games right now, particularly RPGs, to go onto some of these retro websites and, you know, give them a look, if for no other reason, for historical context. And to sort of say, hey, the games that I play now, this is, this is where they came from. This is really where they came from. Much more than, you know, what Nintendo and Sega were doing with the early consoles. Yeah, yeah. It was like, it was like there was a jump between Pong and then Super Mario. Like, whoa, that's revolutionary. But then... You know, that jump between Super Mario and these adventure games, which now lead to, like you said, you want to play Spider-Man. I mean, Spider-Man wouldn't have happened without King's Quest and Grand Theft Auto wouldn't have or any or or Red Dead Redemption or any of these things now. I mean, it's you, you can look back at these Sierra games, these LucasArts games and say this is where it all was built on that foundation. Absolutely. And, you know, again, the concept of the open world, it began mm-hmm. here. It's it's the sort of RPG aspects, but also being able to explore uh, an environment uh, that is a world map that contains, you know, switches. You perform this objective and then that character appears or something changes in the world somewhere. They introduced ticking clocks. They introduced the transition from night to day and back again. It's, it, it, it was crazy for its time. And yeah. it's stuff we all take for granted now. Revolutionary. Absolutely. Uh, Eric, before I let you go, dude, um, you and I know each other because of your movie work, and I wanted you to uh, promote and plug uh, your latest movie that uh, y- you let me be a part of. So please, uh, quick synopsis, quick tell everyone on uh, what you're all about right now. Butterfly Kisses is my current feature film. It came out on October 22nd of 2018. It's doing really, really well. It's available on DVD and Blu-ray, streaming, download, Stars the Reverend Mike Jones. Uh, he has an incredible scene, and we just recently did a screening uh, on the iHeart stage, um, and Mike hosted it, and it was so much fun, and I'm so grateful to you for that. It was, it was a total blast. But I encourage everybody, give the movie a look. If you like urban legends, if you like horror movies, this is the film for you. Absolutely. It was, and I will tell you this also, Eric, I did buy my copy. I didn't pirate it like you did with King's Quest too. Hey, hey, that was my dad's fault. Come on. Come on. No, if you want to see Butterfly Kisses, and I really do recommend it, not just because I have a pretty awesome role in it, but really, it's a great movie. It's a different way to look at urban legends and found footage. And, uh, you know, it's a twist on the horror, suspense, uh, what are we seeing kind of genre. So hit that up. Butterfly Kisses. Go on Amazon or anywhere else that you get movies. You can find it all over the place. Butterfly Kisses. Uh, Eric, what do you, what, what's down the pipeline for you? Do you have another movie that you're not ready to talk about yet? I've got a couple of ideas. I'm just kind of waiting to see how Butterfly Kisses does here in the next few months. And got about three different projects of three different levels. And, you know, it's all going to come back to what my capabilities are when I start planning the next one. That's fantastic, dude. Well, Eric, thanks for talking. And, you know, a lot of good memories. See, that's what it's all about with what you're playing. New stuff or old school games like we just talked for, you know, 50 minutes now about point-and-click games and how much fun they are. And, and now I want to go and get something this afternoon and maybe play King's Quest all over again or Quest for Glory or something. Uh, Eric, I want to bring you back on for another game, so maybe when you get your PS4, let's talk soon. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Thanks for so much for, for having me on. I appreciate it. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.